Good morning, familia. Before the preaching uh, this morning, in the spirit of the Thanksgiving week, I just wanted to say a few things really quick. I don't know how many of you guys ever uh, have taken the time to consider what it takes to put these services together and what it takes for us to come as a church and gather as a church together. Um, and I just want to remind you that week in and week out, there are, um, I would say, hundreds of people working behind the scenes. So there are uh, quite a few people working every week behind the cameras, every week people working without the sound system, people working backstage, people rehearsing for, for worship services, Moms, fathers, married people, single people, older people, young people, and children serving our children every week. There's a ton of people God, that God is using behind the scenes to bring glory to your name and joy to you. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we want to give thanks to the Lord for the amount of people that serve in this church. And we want to thanks to the Lord and we want to thank them for everything that they do in this church. Amen. Also, every week, every month, and every year, there's a whole army of people sustaining this church financially and sustaining this church by prayer. So I want to invite you, for those of you that already pray for the church, to please continue to do that. We believe as a church in the power of prayer. Amen? Amen. And we also believe that generosity is one of the ways in how we worship the Lord. So please continue to support the church financially. As always, there's three ways that you could do that. You could go online with biblechurch.org slash give. You could give at the end of the service as you exit through the doors. There's boxes there. You could deposit your millions there. And there you could always send your check. If you're worshiping uh, at home with us, you could always send your check to the offices. Amen? Amen. All right. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and uh, it is a pleasure for me to welcome you to the church whether you are here in person or you're worshiping with us online, it is such a blessing for us uh, to have the opportunity to start this Advent season together. So if you're visiting for the first time or you're connecting with us for the first time online, please let us know who you are. We want to get to know you. We are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. Now, as I just said, this is the first week of uh, Advent season. And you might be wondering, why is it that Christians every year talk about the same thing during this season? Why is it that Christians have this tradition to talk about the same things during the Advent season? And I want to argue that the reason why Christians have to talk about this every year is because every year we forget. This is the problem when you get accustomed or used to something. You do it one time, it's wonderful. You do it twice, and you say, it's, it's nice. You do it three times, and eh, it's okay. You do four times, and you're like, why do we do that? <laughs> so if you have been a Christian for more than a year, you need to hear this. If you, need, if you have been a Christian for this year only, you need to hear this. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you need to hear this. Amen? Amen. So what we're going to be doing then is we're going to be looking at, at one passage for the next four weeks and then Christmas Eve. Um, we're going to be looking into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bible, uh, please go to Isaiah chapter 9. 
If you have some sort of technology, turn on your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, shame on you. <laughs> but if you don't have it, we will give you one. Amen? Actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but there's a Bible somewhere in front of you. Take that one. Take it with you. All right? Could you please stand for the reading of God's uh, word as a sign of reverence to him and his word? And if you are still here, could you please say, I'm here. I'm here. Now, let me tell you something. Throughout the service, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions, expecting participation. First service didn't go well. <laughs> it was the turkey, maybe. I'm going to please rescue them by participating. Amen? Amen. That's, not good. That's not a good start. I said chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. We're going to read verse 6 together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Lord, there is no better message than the message which is read in Isaiah chapter 9. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus that you make that passage real to us today. I pray for the presence of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, for him to illuminate our minds, moving our hearts to affect our affections, and that way that also affects our will. May, may this uh, not be another Advent season in which we are not impacted by the wonder of this child that came into our world. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, Amen. you may take a seat. All right, what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks, every time we talk about this, during this Advent season, I'm, I'm going to bring, or the other preacher is going to bring, one statement. Every week there will be one statement, and we're going to work with that statement. The statement for this week is this. Christmas... Is both the most offensive and the most wonderful message ever proclaimed. Christmas is both the most offensive and the most wonderful message ever proclaimed. So do me a favor. 
Ask the person next to you, are you ready to be offended? Go ahead, go ahead. Now, you respond, no thanks. <laughs> Let's go with the first point. Christmas is the most offensive um, message ever proclaimed. Why would I say that? Well, Isaiah chapter 9 is a poem. And it's part of a conversation, a larger conversation that God is having with his people that it starts in Isaiah chapter 8. And the description of the people of God Interesting enough, in Isaiah chapter 8, is not a positive description. Actually, the last verses of chapter 8 says that these are people that are in distress and hungry. They roam through the land. They, they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They looked uh, toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's not a nice message for Christmas. It's a description of this emotional and spiritual darkness. It's a description of the condition of people's hearts at that time uh, in that context. What is interesting, though, is that when we start in chapter 9, we find the same words. We find the word um, gloom. We find the word distress, walking in darkness, living in the land of darkness. Now, we're going to go back to that verse later on, but it's important that we understand what is it that, that the Bible means when it uses these words. It's saying that a life without God is someone that experiences gloom, which could be translated as discourage or dissolution. Is this feeling or sensation that someone could have when they're willing or ready to give up, to give up in life or to give up uh, in everything they do? The word distress could be translated as fear or worry. What is interesting, though, about that word is that the root of that word in the original is to be locked up, meaning that this is a group of people that walking without God means that they are bound to fear and bound to worry. And then he describes all of this as people walking in darkness, living in the land of deep darkness. Is this feeling or sensation that there is no hope, there is no joy, there is nothing worth living for. This is the general description, general feeling or sensation of what it means to live in a world without God. Emptiness and insufficiency. And what the text is going to show us is that it doesn't matter uh, how much you do, how much you accomplish, how much you buy, how much you entertain yourself, how many vacations you take, it's just never enough. You can't get rid of any of that. You can't get rid of that feeling, that sensation, that emptiness, or insufficiency, but just doing things. Gloom, discouragement, dissolution, distress, bound to fear, bound to worry, that's what it means to walk in darkness. Now, this is where the text is about to get super offensive. Because what the text is going to tell us is that the reason why we all, we all experience this is because, one, we have brought this upon ourselves. That should be offensive. And two, that even if we try to fix our problem, we can't. That should be offensive. Let me say it again because you guys don't look offended just yet. 
it tells you and it tells me that the reason why we have all these things that we're struggling with is because these are things that we have brought upon ourselves. And two, that even when we try to fix them, we can't. That we're not able to fix that. Let me break, down, let me break it down for you. Why would I say that this is something that we brought upon ourselves? Well, all you have to do is pay attention to the context of the text. God is speaking to his people that have walked away from him. God is speaking to his people that have exchanged the beauty of God for other things, for created things. God is talking to his people that are looking for the blessings of God without God. God is speaking to his people that are looking for satisfaction and security and significance in places, things, or people outside of God. And Isaiah says that the reason why we struggle with all of these things is because we have walked away from God. We don't find him sufficient. Now, I know that there's people here listening to this sermon right now in which you would say, well, Hannibal, you don't know that. You don't know that I have been the victim of somebody else's sin. And I'm not responsible for that. And I would say, amen. You are not responsible for somebody else's sin. But you are responsible what you do with your brokenness. So if your brokenness is not taking you back to God, if your hurt is not taking you back, back to God, you will do what the tendency of the human heart is, to look for comfort, healing, and peace in places, things, and people that are not God. And for that, you are responsible. You are looking for comfort, healing, and peace in places, things, and people that promise things, but they cannot deliver. Or that they give you something for a short period of time. And then he goes away. See, this is the reason why I say that the Bible makes it clear that we are the problem. You are the problem. I'm the problem. The reason why we experience this emotional and spiritual brokenness is because we have the tendency to look for what only God could give us in places things, and people that are not God. That's the problem. And you should be offended by that. The second reason why we should be offended is because he tells us that we know what the problem is. Like, listen, I don't need to convince you with the wrong things you do. Like, you, you know. Even if you pretend, like, what? You know. <laughs> it's, it's inside of you. You know it. And because we know it, we try to fix it. This is the logic of the Bible. Church, listen up. If you are the problem, how are you the solution? If I have brought this upon myself, how am, how am I, I going to be able to fix myself? Listen, I'm not the only one that thinks that way. How many of you guys remember a song that was written 35 years ago by Michael Jackson? The, you know, the younger people, let me, I have to introduce you to Michael Jackson. 
he wrote a song called We Are the World. How many of you guys remember that song? Okay, how many have heard of that song? Yeah, none of the millennials. I don't know what that is. It's, come on, you know what that is. Last year, there was a big celebration for that song. If you guys remember, the lyrics of that song says something like, we are the world. You guys remember that? We are the children. Come on, everybody. No, this is church, people. <laughs> this is what the song says. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. We are the ones that make a brighter day. So let's start giving. I'm going to sing that song every time I ask for money. <laughs> There's a choice we're making. We are saving our own lives. It's true, we'll make a better day, just you and me. <laughs> it's interesting that when we're, they were recording that song, Bob Dylan, that I hope you know who he is, <laughs> someone noticed that Bob Dylan looked uncomfortable. So in a press conference after, they asked him, Bob, Bobby, my friend, why did you look uncomfortable? And this is what he said. Humankind cannot save itself. I don't know if he was thinking about Jesus, but he was right. We cannot fix ourselves. This is the irony of it. We are, have more information than ever before. We are more technologically advanced than ever before. Science is more advanced than ever before. We have accomplished more things than ever before. We have discovered more things than ever before. And yet, we haven't been able to fix ourselves. Intellect hasn't done it. Education hasn't done it. Politics haven't done it. Power hasn't done it. Money hasn't done it. Nothing has been able to fix this gloom, this courage, this solution, this stress, bound to fear, bound to worry, things that we have inside. I would like to argue that this is part of the reason why modern people, inside and outside the church, He's so obsessed with happiness. That's going to give you a headache. See, there's a hint in the text in which God says that he's going to give you something that only he can give. And it's the word joy. Joy, look what it says in verse 3. Joy, rejoice, rejoice at the harvest, rejoice with the mighty plunder. And I'm going to go back to that verse later on. But the verse is telling us that there's something that only God can give. That we, listen up church, that we cannot pursue and that we cannot create. I know that for us modern people, the idea, the supreme thing is to pursue happiness. And I want to argue and I want to invite you to consider that happiness cannot be created and cannot be pursued. Happiness is the byproduct of something else. Happiness comes when you get God. You don't get God, you don't get happiness. In our culture and in our time, happiness became supreme. I was reading about this study 
that says that the number one question non-Christians ask Christians is this, where can I find true happiness? 47% of the population is asking that question. Let me make the argument even more. This is part of the reason why most of us inside the church and outside the church spend most of our income in relaxation, vacation, and fun. 12% of our budget goes to that. of every hundred goes to that. Don't you think that there's something wrong with that? Maybe maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one that struggles with this thing, but something tells me that I'm so obsessed with happiness that every $12 out of every $100, I'm going to spend $12 is just having fun, just to relax, just to decompress, just whatever word you want to put in there. There's something wrong with that. In our culture and in our time, happiness defines morality. You know what I mean by that? All right. This is what a social critic said. In our culture, that which is called good, that which is called good is what produces pleasure. And that which is called evil is what produces pain. So if it makes you feel good, if it makes you feel happy, if it gives you this quote-unquote joy, then it must be good, even if it goes against God, and even if it hurts others. Happiness has defined morality. And on the other hand, if something takes happiness away and takes joy away from you, then you avoid it. Because if it doesn't produce pleasure, then it's not good, even if it's a good thing. This is the fallacy of that argument, that everything that is beautiful in this creation, everything that is worth living for, is always costly. It's always painful. It is painful for a mom to give birth, and yet that's beautiful. It is painful for a man or a woman to be faithful to their spouse, even though that's that's painful, but it's beautiful. It is painful to work hard for the good of others and for the glory of God, even though that's painful, it is beautiful. So if the argument is, well, if it produces, makes me feel good, it has to be good, then you throw in uh, a ton of stuff under the bus. One of the ways someone described our current situation and our obsession for the pursuit of happiness is something like this. He says, this is like drinking Coke, eating chips and chocolate all day long. And it makes you feel good while you're doing it, but later on makes you feel sick and unhealthy. Can't you see what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is you and me. What's wrong with the world is that you're trying to fix yourself and I'm trying to fix myself. Feliz Navidad, people! (laughs) Can you see why Christmas is one of the most offensive messages ever proclaimed? It takes you down from your little kingdom. It tells you and it tells me that we're not as wonderful as we think we are. 
The good news, though, is that Christmas, that's only part of the message. The good news is that Christmas is much more than that. Christmas is also uh, the most wonderful message ever proclaimed. You know, I don't know if you have ever experienced this, but sometimes one word makes a difference. One single word can change everything in your life. One word. For good or for evil. For good, let's say that your spouse, if you're married, your spouse says, you are so beautiful, baby. Oh, that changes everything. <laughs> but how about if the same person uses a different word? Why have you gained weight? That's an issue. <laughs> One word has the power to change everything. And here in the text, one word changes everything. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless. Can you say nevertheless? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen the great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has done. Nevertheless. Yes, we are the reason why the world is the way it is. Yes, there's something wrong with us. Yes, we have the tendency to look in places, things, and people for the things that only God can give us. Yes, we cannot fix ourselves. We are part of the problem. Yes, we look, we have issues because of our gloom, discouragement, dissolution, distress, bound to fear and bound to worry. Yes, to all of that. But nevertheless, God chose to bring light into our darkness. Listen up, church. We do not have a God that looks at your misery and your struggle and leaves you alone. We do not have a God that looks at your misery and your struggle and says from heaven, you fix it, y'all. We don't have a God that looks at your misery, your pain, your discouragement and says, let's see how you do it. We have a God that comes down. That gets into your messiness. That steps into your darkness. And brings light. To make everything new again. I want to use a metaphor to help you understand that. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if suddenly the sun goes out? What would happen? If the sun disappears, well, let me tell you three things that science say that would happen. The whole earth will be zero degrees by the end of the day. It will be 100 degrees below zero by the end of the year. And eventually, the entire world will be 400 degrees below zero. Meaning that if the sun goes out, we all will freeze to death. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Number two, if the sun goes out, photosynthesis will stop immediately, which means that plants will die, which means that we will not get oxygen, which means that if we happen to survive the freezingness of this world, we will suffocate if the sun goes out. And number three, if the sun goes out, let's say that for some miracle of God, you survive the first one, you survive the second one, but when it gets to the third one, vitamins A and D 
are out the door because that's what we get from the sun. Meaning that you automatically will become fragile and your bones would start to crumble. <laughs> so if you survive the first one and you survive the second one, you're still going to die because you're weak. Remember I told you that I was going to use this as a metaphor? That's kind of a description of what it means to live without God. This is a description of what it means if God wouldn't take in the initiative to come into this world. This is a description of what it means to be spiritually uh, dying of spiritual suffocation, of dying of spiritual fragility, or dying of simply because we can save ourselves. That's what it means to walk in darkness. That's what it means to live without Jesus. That's what it means to live without God. And what we have is this amazing, powerful, beautiful, and perfect God that breaks into the world to save the very people that did not want him. That's the difference between Christianity and any other religion. We have a God that looks at our misery and steps into the mud, breaks into the world, and gets involved. There are people here right now that are going through very painful and difficult things. There is people with us worshiping online that are going through very difficult things. And the temptation is to think that God is indifferent and that God does not care. And we think that because we don't have an answer and the reason why we are suffering. But I want to invite you to consider this. If God saw you in your misery, if God saw you walking in a spiritual darkness, if God saw the condition, your emotional condition and your spiritual condition, and if God saw that and decided to break into your world and to come to you, that does not answer the question, why is it that you're suffering? Right? But it tells you one thing, that he cannot be because he doesn't care. The reason why you suffer cannot be because he does not care. Because when you were in darkness, he broke into your world. If you are a believer, you have to keep that in mind. We have a God that is never indifferent. We have a God that is amazing, perfect, beautiful, eternal, self-sufficient, and independent. And yet, he looks at you and breaks into your world. And that is where you're going to get your happiness and your joy from. Notice the order of the text. Right after he says that, in verse 3, it says that you, God, have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. It is because God breaks into our world that we can actually experience true, genuine, and transcendent joy. Happiness is the result of us embracing the person that came to rescue us. That kind of happiness and joy you cannot create. 
You cannot manufacture, you cannot buy, you cannot, uh, you cannot gain. It has to be given to you by God. And the text continues the argument and it tells you that the reason why we can and should experience this happiness or joy is because when he breaks into our world, he, can, he comes to give us freedom. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, the rod of their, of their oppressors. All these words are metaphors for slavery. And it tells us that, that God came to break all that up. The yoke, the bar, and the rod. The freedom that you're looking for can only come from God. Not your career. Not your money. Not your intellect. Not your political party. Not your accomplishments. Not your power. Not your titles. Not your family. Not nothing. Not your help. It is possible, church, to lose all of that and yet feel happy. Did you know that? It is possible to lose all of that and still feel joy. Because the joy and the happiness that comes with God and the joy and the happiness that comes from us finding ourselves free is not bound to circumstances. I've always wondered why is it that Paul writes a letter about joy from prison? That doesn't make any sense. And yet, he does. Not only we experience this happiness and this joy because God has given us freedom, but because when he comes and breaks into our world, he gives us victory. Every warrior's wood used in a battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. When God brings his light and breaks into our darkness, he comes to give us freedom from our enemy, the flesh, ourselves, the devil, and the world. So I, I don't know where you are during this season in life. If you're a believer, I don't know if you are allowing fear or worry to get a hold of your heart, but you have to remember, number one, that God already won. That even if your pain is real and you struggle with all these things, God already won. Even if you feel guilty or feel ashamed or feel whatever, God already gave you freedom. He gave you freedom the moment he came into our world. He brought, he brought his light into our darkness. So here's a question for you. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that all these promises and everything that God says that he was going to do is true? How do you know? And this is where verse 6 comes in. Because a child was born. Jesus Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. Let me pause there for a second because I need you to let that sink into your heart. Let me put it this way. None of us here is the center of the universe. Amen? Amen. None of us. God is. 
And yet, God made you the center of his heart. You know how I know that? Because to us, a, born a, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God designed everything. God put everything. God created everything. God sends Jesus because, to put, because for him, we are the center of his heart. You don't need people's approval. You don't need to be accepted. You don't need to be loved. You don't need to be appreciated. You don't need to be elevated when God, the God of the universe, thought of you and put you in the center of his heart. That makes a difference. That changes everything. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is the beautiful thing about this passage, though. Is that everything that the text says that God was going to give us, all that stuff comes with Jesus. You know how I know that? Watch here. Jesus is the light of verse 2. In John 8, he says that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is our son. He came to deal with our spiritual suffocation, the spiritual fragility, and the spiritual de destruction. Jesus not only is the light, but Jesus is also the joy in verse 3. It says in John chapter 16 that he turns our sorrows into joy. This joy that is not bound to circumstances. Jesus is also the one that came to give us freedom in verse 4. John 8 says, Jesus came, Jesus came to give us the truth, and that truth will set us free. Galatians chapter 5 says that he has set us free. You know what it means to be free? No condemnation of sin. No power over, you're not, you don't have to be controlled over the power of sin. And one day, God will, Jesus will get rid of the presence of sin. You don't need to be controlled by your guilt. You don't need to be controlled by your shame. You don't need to be controlled by your fear. You don't need to be controlled by your anxiety, even as you struggle with it. And Jesus is the one that came to destroy our enemies that we find in verse 5. That's what that phrase, the government will be on his shoulder, means. You remember what it says in Colossians? It says that at the cross, he defeated the devil. But in his resurrection, he defeated sin and he defeated death. This is the reason why when Jesus goes to the cross, he says, it is finished. It is truly finished. What needed to be done, he already did. The penalty that needed to be paid, he already paid. The darkness that needed to be experienced, he experienced. You guys remember at the cross? And the sky goes dark. And then Jesus said, it is finished. You know what that means? That it doesn't matter how you feel. That if you are in Jesus... You are already someone. You are already accepted. You are already forgiven. You are already loved. You are already adopted. You have been already sanctified, separated for God. You have been already justified, declared righteous and pure before the Father. You have everything you could possibly think about or think for or dream about. Everything that you truly want, you already have. Why would we be seeking for happiness 
and joy in all the wrong places. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that in the United States that we have everything we want? We are not in the category of the most happy people in the world. You know, it's a study for that stuff. And what kills me is that there are people like in Costa Rica, a country this big that experienced joy like no one else. Because joy doesn't have to do with anything outside of us. It has to do with what is inside of us. And Jesus, lastly, is the one that proves that God does care. Let me read this quote and then we finish. This is by Dorothy Sayers. She says, The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the crampy res cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us. And through it, and thought, of, and thought it well worth his while. I don't know why is it that God allows suffering. I don't know why God brings suffering. But this I know. It cannot be because he doesn't care. The incarnation proves it. You are not the center of the world. But for sure you are the center of his heart. Let's celebrate Advent and Merry Christmas. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, wonderful Savior. It is painful to hear that we still struggle with things that we're not supposed to struggle anymore. And yet... We remember that we still live in a broken world. And we remember that we're still sinful. And I pray, Lord, that during this season of Advent, we may remember, we may celebrate, and we may be controlled by the beautiful good news that you in your son Jesus broke into our world came into our messiness, brought your light into our darkness to give us what we so much wanted. Not just a relationship with you, not just salvation, not just adoption, but to give us joy. A joy that cannot be taken away even in the midst of pain. A joy that is not bound to circumstances. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, especially for my brothers and sisters that are struggling because of different reasons. I pray, Lord, that they may experience the joy of your salvation once again. And I pray for those that are exploring Christianity, Lord, 
I pray, Lord, that you bring them to you and that they may find in you everything that they're looking for. Please make that happen. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, 